We're, we're in the middle of a series, Church Without Walls, as we walk through the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, and we're, we're basically observing the beginning of the church. And we, we're calling this church without walls because what we've noticed so far is that the mission of God cannot be contained by any one place, by any building, by any structure. And so we're seeing uh, the Holy Spirit of God leading this new movement of Jesus followers into some surprising places, into some risky places. And we're seeing some pretty, pretty amazing, some scary, some good things happen so far. We're going to be in the eighth chapter of Acts today if you want to have your Bible ready. Uh, we're going to kind of walk through a, a pretty fascinating story. And before we start at the beginning, I want to just plop us down right in the middle. So let's go ahead and put up the first slide. And this is a, a little section from uh, the end of this story. And it, and it goes like this. As they continued down the road, they came to a stream of water. The eunuch said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down to the water. And Philip baptized him on the spot. If you were in the desert by this road in the first century and you watch this chariot pull up and these two men get out and go into this stream, you would be utterly confused, flabbergasted. Uh, this seems odd to us because maybe it feels like a long time ago, distant in time and culture. But even if you lived in the first century and you saw this happen, it this would be a bizarre, strange scene. You would need to know some of the backstory. Why? Well, there's two people here. There's Philip, and you and I know a little bit about Philip if we've been here over the past couple weeks. Philip is one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus. Philip has seen one of his close associates, a good friend, be stoned to death by a religious mob not all that long ago in Jerusalem. Do you remember? His friend had lost his life. Stephen has lost, Stephen has lost his life. And, and, and this persecution breaks out, and the church is forced to flee. Philip becomes a refugee. And, and, and he goes not to somewhere safe, but he goes to Samaria. He goes to Samaria. He goes to an area near Jerusalem that was dangerous for Jews to go to. And now we see Philip out in the middle of the desert. What is he doing here? He, he, he's been traveling, he's tired, he's probably dirty, his beard's getting long, his hair's messed up, hasn't slept in days maybe. What is he doing in the middle of the desert? And, and then, in a, in a study of contrast, in a study of opposites, the man right next to him looks completely different. Whereas Philip is this olive-skinned Jew, next to him is this dark-skinned Ethiopian a man who literally was coming from thousands and thousands of miles south from present-day Sudan, what was known as Ethiopia in that day. This man, in contrast to Philip, is dressed really well. The way he carries himself, you can tell this is a man of authority, of influence, someone associated perhaps with royalty. This man comes from an empire, Ethiopia, that, that had lasted for over a thousand years, that exerted great influence in Africa, in the Middle East, all the way up to the Roman Empire. And so what in the world are these two men doing together in the middle of the desert, walking out of a chariot together and wading into this stream in the, in the middle of nowhere? Even if, even if you were familiar with time and culture, this scene makes no sense to you whatsoever. 
So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to start at the beginning of this story and kind of walk through it and, and, and see what it was that led these two men to this point. What, that, what led, led these two men who came from such different points of culture and place and experience and religion to be in this place at this time wading together into this desert stream. So if you, if you have your Bible, please open it up, and we're going to just jump right into this beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip, forced to flee Jerusalem, that which was comfortable, safe, and secure, that which he knew. He goes to Samaria, a scary place filled with people who were probably scary to him. And in this place, he found, he found that the gospel of Jesus was received. He found himself reconciled to those who were his, his enemy. He saw, he saw people healed. So amazing things happen. And at the height of this spiritual high, God comes to Philip and says, go. Have, have, have you experienced this before? Those of you who've been Christians for a while, you have some, sometimes you kind of have these mountaintop experiences, mountaintop spiritual experiences. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, and you, and you have this experience, now, I want to stay here. I like this. I feel so close to God. And why is it that it's in those moments where God says, get out of here, go. And that's what happens to Philip. And the instructions are not good. These are bad directions. Your GPS would not take these directions and know what to do with them. Go south to the desert road that leads to Gaza. That'd be me saying, hey, let's meet at the Dan Ryan. <laughs> Where on the Dan Ryan? Which direction? Which exit? That's, that's how vague these, these directions are. Go south to the road that leads to Gaza. And the, and the bizarre thing is that Philip does it. He's like, okay. And he goes. Philip's not crazy. We, we know this. We've seen this. So why is it that he can just like that pick up from a spiritual high and head off into the desert? He's traveled north from Jerusalem up to Samaria. Now he travels south back past Jerusalem and out into the desert. How can he do this so quickly? I have two thoughts. One, Philip has come to know the missional character of his God. Philip Grew up, schooled in Judaism, schooled in the Hebrew scriptures. So he, he was a smart guy. He knew the Hebrew scriptures. And I believe that Philip was beginning to put these things together so that he began to better understand the missional character of his God who he'd worship. Let, let me show you what I mean. Let's put up the next slide here. Is there an Isaiah slide somewhere? Keep, uh, is that the one? Yeah. Isaiah 49, verse 6. So, so this is a, a well-known Old Testament book of Scripture uh, Philip would have been very familiar with. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. In other words, it, God's saying, I, it's, it's, my mission is too big to be contained by one nation, by one people. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the, say it with me, the ends of the earth. Does that ring a bell? Ends of the earth? Who said that? Who said that? Jesus. Sometimes Jesus is just a cheesy Sunday school answer. In this case, it's true. <laughs> Jesus says, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and, and, 
And so, and, so, and so Philip is beginning to put some pieces together. Oh, this is the God I've been following since I was a child. Is there another scripture we can put up there? Isaiah 52. The Lord will bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the... Okay, so say it a little bit louder. And all the... will see the salvation of our God. So, so this is the God that Philip's been worshiping his whole life. It's just that maybe he's missed it because he grew up in a culture that said God was to be worshiped in one place, in one way, in one temple, in one city. God was for one kind of people, for one nation. That was his religious experience. And yet his scriptures told him that God was bigger than that, that God was for all people, that God was a missional God who was carrying history somewhere, going somewhere, calling people to himself. And, and, and now, he's, now he's grasping this. Because his Lord also said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So when God comes to Philip and says, go to the desert road, for Philip, this is the character of God. This is what God does. God is a God on the move. God is a God of mission. This makes sense. This is what God does. He calls us to risky places, to new places, to pursue his mission. So he knows about God. But there's something else. He has experienced the radical, life-changing nature of the gospel. It's not just that he knows who God is. It's not just that he knows what God is like. It's that Philip has experienced in his bones the gospel. Why? Philip's been to Samaria. Philip has gone somewhere he thought he would never, ever go. Philip has talked to people he thought he would never, ever talk to people. Philip has been reconciled to people who were his enemies. Philip has seen those who were opposed to him come to accept and be transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Philip has been to Samaria. Does that make sense? It's not just that he knows this is what God is like. It's that Philip has experienced the gospel. For Philip, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses, isn't theory. It's not theology. It's not something to discuss in a small group about. It's his life. It's his experience. That makes sense? Why, why are we hesitant why are we slow to, to obey? Why are we slow to wonder what it is that God is calling us to? Is it because we don't know enough? Maybe some of us. Maybe some of us have an idea that, that God is kind of contained in a box, is in my corner, does things my way for my kind of people. Maybe. But if you've been to this church more than two weeks, probably not. Because what you hear at this church is the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So it may not be for most of us that we don't have enough knowledge. Maybe it's that we haven't experienced the radical life-changing nature of the gospel. I don't mean that you don't know the gospel. I don't, I don't mean that I don't know the gospel, haven't heard the gospel, haven't intellectualized the gospel, haven't, haven't theolog theologized, theologized the gospel. I mean, maybe we haven't experienced the gospel. I mean, maybe we haven't been to Samaria. When was the last time you went to Samaria? See, here's the difference between Philip and me most of the time. It's not the knowledge piece. It's that Philip takes a step into Samaria. He doesn't sit on the sidelines talking about the mission of God. 
writing books about the mission of God, blogging about the mission of God. Philip takes a step into Samaria, and there he encounters the radical, life-changing nature of the gospel of Jesus. And so when God comes to Philip and says, it's time to go, hey, this is what God is like, and I've experienced this. Let's go. Let's do it. No matter how crappy the instructions are, the directions are, I'm in. Do you lack knowledge of God or experience of the gospel? Okay, so let's watch what happens. Um, Verse 27. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had got down to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. Let's talk a little bit about who this man is, this Ethiopian. We, we've mentioned he's from this, this empire, uh, this, this massive, powerful African empire. He's probably been sent on a diplomatic mission to the Roman Empire, and since he's in the vicinity, he, he, he goes to Jerusalem. More on that in a second. This man is, is, is a person of incredible influence. He is basically the secretary of the treasury. He's the Timothy Geithner of his day. Does everybody know who Timothy Geithner is? You want to know who this person, this is the time in our history you need to know. Secretary of the treasury, that's an important person right now in our economy because it's not good, you know? Okay. <laughs> if you don't know, ask somebody on the way out. You want to know that. So this guy, just like Timothy Geithner is within the, the, the inner circle of President Barack Obama, this man, this Ethiopian, would have been within the inner circle of, of the, what was really, the, the title was really the Candace, which is just basically the title for this queen of the Ethiopians, this queen who had an immense power and control over this huge empire. He was within her inner circle. Okay, immense power, influence, probably wealth, prestige. And yet, in the same breath, we're told that this man is a eunuch. I'm not going to go into immense detail here. The man had been castrated. If you're a woman sitting next to a guy right now and he's like cringing, just understand. Not pleasant. Not a voluntary procedure, let's just say. Someone had made this choice for this man to castrate him. This is, a, this is a, not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. Why? When a person was, was put in charge of, a, of, of an area of a royal house, of an empire, Basically, they wanted to make sure that this person was 100% devoted to this royal family, to, to the queen. And so basically, this man had been rendered impotent in every way so that his identity could be taken from him. Does that make sense? Basically, somebody said, your identity is no longer your own. Your personhood is no longer your own. We're going to we're going to put something new, something different onto you that you have no choice over. So even though he was a man of power, prestige, he had no say, he had no choice. Something else was put onto him. His identity was taken from him. Does that make sense? This is a man who knew great isolation. This is a man who was never going to get married, who was never going to have a family, This is a man who maybe had access to wealth, but not relationships. Does that make sense? So this is the Ethiopian. And here's the interesting thing. He goes to Jerusalem to worship. 
This man is not a Jew. We know that. He's Ethiopian. He lives in a, a, a very far w- w- south in Africa, present-day Sudan. Not a Jew. But he is a God seeker. He is seeking after God. He's heard of this God and wants to find him, wants to know this God. And so probably on his way back from his diplomatic mission, he goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple in order to encounter this God. And the tragic thing is that when he got to the temple, scholars agree he would have been turned away. He would have been rejected at the temple. Because the Old Testament scriptures make very clear that a man who was a eunuch could not enter the temple. So so think about this man. This man who who knew such relational isolation, who, who felt so distant from people, who felt like his very identity had been taken from him. This man still, after all of that, seeking after God. And then he gets to the very place where he's hoping to encounter God, the the, the temple, and he's rejected. Good thing that doesn't happen in our day, right? Literally, as I'm writing this portion of the scripture, I'm at this, this Logan Square coffee shop, and there's this table, these three guys next to me. And I'm not, I'm not intentionally eavesdropping, but, you know, they're close, right? So... And pretty animated, they're having this conversation that, uh, that telling about uh, the experience of, 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 of their, their experience with the church. Each of these men uh, talking about their experience as a gay man being turned away from the church. And I'm like, work, I'm literally <laughs> typing this part of the sermon. The very place, the very place that should be a symbol of hope restoration, reconciliation. For this man and for many in our day has become a symbol of judgment and exclusion. So this man heads back, heads back into the desert, heads back into the desert. And, and Philip, so Philip then meets this guy. Uh, Philip, who has been obedient, he... he um, he follows, he follows orders and he encounters, he encounters this man, this man who was experienced what I can only imagine uh, was great despair in this moment. I, I uh, emailed earlier this week, I emailed a, a guy from our church who I've uh, talked to a, a little bit about his story and, uh, and, and this guy has a, uh, some difficult elements of, of his past. He experienced some pretty hard abuse at the hands of his father when he was uh, a child. And so I, I emailed him. I said, help me out here because I'm, 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 I'm looking at this and, 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 and the story in scripture and it's, it's reminding me of things that you've told me about and does this line up and can I share some of your story? So let me just read you a little bit of what he emailed me this week. He says, I often feel isolated from God because I just don't know how God would allow me to feel this burden because of these injustices. I'm not blaming God for the abuse. Though I have come to realize that the abuse was the decision of my father, whatever motivated him to make that decision. So God did not abuse me. My father did. I feel isolated from God because I wonder why he allows me to continue to feel the pain of these injustices. Why doesn't he allow me to feel his presence? What is funny is that I often tell people that I was able to endure the abuse because I felt that God was with me during it. It was afterwards that I felt distant from God. 
It was afterwards that I cried out the loudest and the most to God. My past makes it easy for me to feel isolated from God and from others. And some of us, some of you know exactly what that feels like. Some of you, because of things that were done to you, know exactly what that feels like. To feel this distance from other people, distance from God. And some of us, it's not because of something that was done to us, but because of decisions that we've made. Things that we've chosen. And make it feel like God is alone. And some of us have had this experience where we, we get the courage up to reach out to God and it feels like God is just out of reach. Or we go to a place where we think we're going to find hope and healing and we've experienced rejection. This is not just a story from the first century. I think this is many of, of our stories, many of our experiences. And, and this is where Philip encounters this man. He bumps into this Ethiopian eunuch, this man of of such power out in the middle of the desert. He's obeyed. Philip has obeyed God. He doesn't know exactly where he's going or why he's going there. And he finds himself in the desert. Side note, Ethiopia at this time was, was like another planet to people who lived in Jerusalem, to people who lived in the Middle East. It was so far away. It would take so long to get there. It just felt like another planet. The way that they described Ethiopia was it's at the ends of the earth. That was like shorthand. So, so if, if this Ethiopian was going home, people would say he's returning to the ends of the earth. So, so picture Philip here. He, he's, he's out in the desert. He's walking beside this, this chariot. He begins to talk to this Ethiopian man and he finds out he's from Where? The ends of the earth. Think about Philip for a second. He was in Jerusalem. He's been through Judea. He spent some time in Samaria. And now he's talking to a man from... I think his mind is just like, Like, I know Jesus said... I know Jesus said that we were going to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, but already? Like that fast? Church historians will tell you that the gospel of Jesus Christ reached Africa way before it ever reached Europe because of this story to the ends of the earth. Just imagine Philip standing there talking like, really, God? I'm, about, I'm having a conversation the secretary of the treasury from the ends of the earth. Philip understands the missional character of God. His life has been radically altered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there in the middle of the desert, he's talking to a man who comes from the ends of the earth. Um, Let's put the next slide. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. I'm going to just speculate here for a second. Why is, why is the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah? He's, he's, he knows Judaism, obviously. He knows to go to the temple. He knows about the temple. That's where you go to worship God. He's obviously somewhat familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. He's got some scrolls there. He's reading from the original language, it would appear, 
the, the, this well-known prophet, why does he go to Isaiah? Why does he go to Isaiah? Do we have a, another Isaiah passage we can put up there? Isaiah 56, this is just a few paragraphs uh, ahead of where we find the Ethiopian reading. Let no foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. You see why I think that this is why the eunuch went to Isaiah? I mean, that's him. In in this ancient Hebrew scripture, he finds his story. I mean, it couldn't be any more clear. To the eunuch, to the foreigner, let no one say that you're going to be distant from me. No, I'm going to give you a name in my temple, an everlasting name. You will be better than sons and daughters. My hunch is the Ethiopian had that passage memorized. Any of you have that experience where you find something in Scripture that speaks to your situation, you take it in, you hang on to it for all your worth? I think that's what was happening here. I think this was the hope that the Ethiopian eunuch was clinging to, that God was actually for him, that God would actually give him a name, an identity, an everlasting name that he would be a child of God. And yet, he goes where he thinks he's supposed to go and he's rejected. And we find him on the desert road turning back to Isaiah, reading these scriptures, and that's when Philip shows up. That's when this wild-haired, dusty, sweaty, tired Philip shows up alongside the trailer. Hey, what you reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, well, how can I understand that if no one explains it to me? Want to join me? What is Philip thinking in this moment? I'm about to step into the, the chariot of the secretary of the treasury of the ends of the earth. What? How, is, how can Philip do this? How can Philip, who, who once had a view of God that was pretty ethnocentric, that was pretty nationalistic, that was pretty contained to one place, one city, one temple, how can Philip step into the chariot of a man who could not even enter the temple where he worshiped God? Philip didn't just know about God. Philip had been wrecked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Philip encountered Jesus, every last bit of religion was ripped from him. There was nothing left that he could stand on that would put him in a position of superiority or authority over this man. Philip was able to say, I too am a eunuch. I too am dependent on God to give me a new name. The gospel of Jesus had wrecked Philip. Every bit of religion taken from him. 
And so in that moment, he grabs the Ethiopian hand, steps up into the trailer, and they start talking about the scriptures. And this is what they read. Let's look at the, can we put up the passage there? Um, nope. Acts 8. 32 and 34. There we go. Okay, so, so this is what he's reading. Two verses from the, old, from the uh, book of Isaiah. He was led like a, a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? You think the, the, the Ethiopian could relate to this? He was silent. He had been deprived of justice. He'd experienced humiliation. He would have no descendants. I think the Ethiopian saw himself in that passage. I think he saw his experience in this passage. This is my life. Humiliation? No descendants? That's my story. As, as, as he and Philip begin talking about who this suffering servant is, who is this person? The Ethiopian wants to know. Philip begins to show him who this suffering servant is in this Isaiah passage. Because see, it's one thing for the Ethiopian to identify with the suffering service. I can relate to him. I can relate to his experience. It's another thing entirely Philip shows him for the suffering servant to be able to identify with him. Philip shows the eunuch that this suffering servant was Jesus Christ, that this suffering servant was the Son of God, that this suffering servant was sent from heaven, not just so the Ethiopian could identify with him, but so that the Son of God could identify with the Ethiopian. So that Jesus Christ could take upon himself all of the suffering, all of the injustice, all of the isolation, all of the abuse, all of the rebellion, all of the sin that this man had ever known. Do you, do you, do you see that? It's not, it's not just that the, the unit could relate to the suffering servant Philip shows him. It's that the suffering servant came in the form of Jesus Christ and has taken everything that distanced him from God onto himself. Next slide. Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. We use that phrase, good news, really flippantly. Good news, good news. What's so good about the good news? There was a lot that was good about the good news for this man. This was, this was the best news he'd ever heard. This is a man whose very identity had been taken from him. This was a man who'd experienced abuse, isolation, and all of a sudden he has learned that the suffering servant has taken all of that onto himself. This is how Jesus says it in Mark. Can we put the Mark passage up there? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philip shows the eunuch that the suffering servant, that Jesus Christ has ransomed his life. 
has freed him, has liberated him, has taken every single thing that distanced him from God, every single thing that isolated him from those around him, and taken that upon himself and taken that to the cross so that this man could receive a new name so that this man could be given an everlasting name that no one could take from him. Do you see why this was good news? Is the gospel good news to you? Is the gospel good news to you? Because there's no question for this Ethiopian man that this was the best thing he would ever hear in his life. And so we're back to our, let's go back to the verse 36. So he gave orders to stop the chariot. We're back to our opening scene. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Let me ask you a question. The man has just heard the gospel, had just heard the good news. And now he says, what could stop me from being baptized? I want to get baptized right now. Does that seem a little quick to you? Come on, be honest. Does that seem a little, yeah? It does, it does to me too. I mean, really. Shouldn't he have gone to like a discipleship class? <laughs> Not like a curriculum that you're supposed to go through before you get baptized. Just, just try to stop this man from being baptized. I I dare you. <laughs> Try to get in the way of this man being baptized. Because he's, he's just learned that he has a new name. He's just learned that the Son of God has ransomed his life, that no one has any claim over him or his identity. He's just learned that all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the isolation that he's experienced in his life has been taken onto the suffering servant, onto the Son of God, and taken to the cross. If this man's desire to identify with Jesus in baptism seems too fast, it's probably because you and I haven't experienced the gospel lately in our lives. That sense of urgency that I have, I have to be identified with Jesus. I have to be identified with my Savior with my liberator, with my rescuer, with the one who ransomed my life. The thing about Bible stories is that they feel a long ways away. Um, I read these stories and I, we can talk about them passionately. We can say, wow, wasn't that amazing what God did in the past? But sometimes it's hard, at least for me, it's hard to bring that forward and go, is it still happening? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ still have that kind of potency today in our lives? I emailed a friend of, of, of Maggie's and mine this week, and um, we've known her for eight or nine years. Know a lot of her story. And, uh, and so I said, Tanya, this is what I'm preaching on. 
and I, th- I think I need your help. <laughs> I, I, need, I need to know if the gospel does this kind of work today. I need to know if Jesus is in the same business of reconciling and ransoming people's lives today. I need to know if healing is still available today. So can I read you some of her story? This is about a decade ago this experience happened. On a sunny Friday afternoon, the door to my apartment opened and I looked up to see a man with a bandana covering most of his face with a gun pointed directly at me. As he kept the gun pointed on me and made me go through my apartment and close all the window coverings, I felt my freedoms leaving me. Over the next hour and a half, I was held captive. I lost my freedom of sight and I was blindfolded. I lost my freedom of speech as a sock was stuffed in my mouth and something was tied around my face and I was gagged. I lost my freedom to defend myself as socks were placed over my hands and my hands were tied behind my back. I lost freedom to control my body as I was repeatedly assaulted, raped, and tortured. I thought I had lost the freedom of life as the attacker continually placed the semi-automatic pistol to my head, slid it to load the chamber, and told me he was going to kill me. I lost freedom from fear as I went from believing that God would physically protect me to knowing the reality of being severely harmed. In the days, weeks, and months following, I also lost other freedoms as I dealt with the emotional and psychological effects of the attack. For a while afterwards, it seemed like what happened to me was only taking from me. I had to drop out of school because my mind, my mind could not engage with it. I had to forego my new job and the career plans I had for myself. Soon after the attack, I'd moved into the lakefront apartment I'd had my eye on. I lost that too as I became too fearful to live alone. I lost control over my emotions and would become weepy, angry, or distant easily. On the outside, I didn't look so great. And then she skips forward a few years. I have definitely found Jesus to be the source of all my healing, although he has chosen to heal different parts of me in different ways. He used the body of Christ, the church, tangible people who poured his love on me by surrounding me and caring for me, listening to me, providing for my needs when I couldn't. I believe that many prayers of friends and others have been a catalyst for my healing. He used trained counselors to help me process some of the trauma, understand what I was experiencing, and have some tools to move forward in areas in which I was struggling. He used his word to speak to my heart about who he is and who I am, which brought healing and started building back trust in him and deepening my relationship with him. He did miracles where sometimes I would literally all of a sudden realize I had no longer dealt with a certain fear or issue any longer. It seems that every time God uses my experience to draw others to him, it is part of redeeming what happened. And then she jumps forward to today. The trial date has been moved three times for various reasons. They eventually caught this person. Amazingly, God has done things in my heart during this time that make me so thankful for the delay. God transformed my heart into a heart that loves the defendant. For me, putting that love into action meant obeying God as he prompted me to email my prayer list and ask them all to pray for the defendant as well. So now over 100 people on that list have been asked to specifically pray for him. To me, that is redemption. God has somehow used a series of horrific crimes that this man committed to lead to him having a huge prayer team praying for him. God took what Satan intended for evil and used it for good, even for the good of the person that Satan was using to commit the evil. 
And then she closes by saying, okay, hard to wrap your head around maybe and definitely a God thing. I I need that story. I need to know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is as potent today as it was when the Ethiopian eunuch encountered it in the middle of the desert. I need to know that there is nothing too big, too broken, too unjust for the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring hope and healing and reconciliation. I need that story. Let's put up the last verses here. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. It's an odd way for a story to end. I've, I've not had that experience before. Just, I don't know what that poof or, you know, just. But all, he's gone. Philip is gone. Apparently God has something else for him. And so here's Philip, the man who had been wrecked by the gospel, ready to pursue this missional God wherever he was called, off to the next thing God had for him. And the Ethiopian eunuch, we're told, rejoices. Goes on his way rejoicing. Why? Because it was really good news. Because his life had been, his life had been changed in the desert. Because that which used to define him defined him no longer. He was no longer eunuch. He'd been given a, a, a new name, an everlasting name, child of God ransomed sinner. And so he, he rejoices. And this kind of story for me drags up stuff. It drags up reminders that I'm a pretty religious person. Uh, and and I, I need the gospel to wreck me regularly. I need to have that religion ripped from me regularly. And so I've asked our prayer folks just to be available. If you need to, if you need to vocalize that, if you need to kind of confess your religiosity, they would love to hear some of your story and pray for you that the gospel would wreck your life. And they'd also love to pray for folks who are feeling really, really distant from God. They would love to pray for folks who feel like they have a label on them that's been placed there by somebody else. They would like to pray for you if you feel like your identity was taken from you. So we're going we're gonna to sing one last song together. And during that time, I'd like to invite you to come and pray with some of these folks. I'd like to invite you to come and and maybe you've never shared any of your story before. Maybe you've never shared that you're a person who really is comfortable with religion and has a hard time with the gospel. Maybe you just need to say that and ask for someone to pray.
Or maybe there's a part of your story that needs to, that needs to be said so that someone can pray that you would know the, the ransoming love of the suffering servant who has taken all of that, all of your stuff onto him. They would love to pray for you. So let me pray for us and then let's sing together. Some of us need to know today that the good news is good. Some of us have confused religion for the love of God. And we need some good news that is going to tear that down and rip that religion from us so that we have no position condescension or judgment left so that we like Philip can step up into the chariot amazed at what God has done in our lives amazed that he has brought us to this point where we can be participants with God in his gospel mission and some of us some of us need need the good news that says you have a new name It says you are no longer defined by that thing that happened to you, by that that wickedness that was committed against you. You have a a new name. You have been reconciled to your God, to your creator. Some of us need to know that we have been forgiven for decisions that we made, for abuses that we committed. We need to know that the good news is good. So that we, like the Ethiopian, can rejoice. That can just, uh, rejoicing praise can just explode from us because we have been radically convinced of the goodness of the gospel. It's wrecked us. And so, Lord, as we sing, Holy Spirit of the living God, help us to sing as liberated, ransomed people whose lives will never be the same, who have been given new names. Help us to rejoice as if you are really God, really in control, really good. We pray and we ask for this in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for being with us, for worshiping with us today. Now receive the benediction. You are the God who calls us out of Jerusalem. You're the God who calls us to Samaria. You are the God who is on the move. You are the God who is recreating, redeeming, restoring our lives and your creation. Help us to know you. You are the God who sent your son that our lives might be ransomed, might be set free, might be liberated. You are the God who has given us a new name, an everlasting name, child of God. Help us to know this gospel to the depths of our soul. And now we ask that you would go before 
come behind, walk beside us this week. Wherever we find ourselves, wherever the mission of God calls us this week, Holy Spirit of the living God, let us know that you are with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.